1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 13. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that, quote, all of us possess knowledge, end quote. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something he does not yet know as he ought to know, but if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to eating a food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods and in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords. Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We're no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. But take care that this right, this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died, thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience. When it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. This is the living and active and ever abiding word of God. Let's ask God now to not only bless the reading of it, but our understanding of it. Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for this time. And Father, we we are supremely grateful for your revealed word. Lord, as the sun is shining down upon us right now, your word is brighter still and leads the way. Left to ourselves, our own hearts and consciences would be lost in darkness. And yet you have condescended by revealing yourself to us in this book. Father, bless it. Bless the reading of it, yes, but Lord, bless now our understanding as it's preached. May my words be true, and if anything wrong is said, Lord, may it fall flat. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In the city of Worms, spelled like worms, but you say Worms, the city of Worms, Germany, When Martin Luther was charged with heresy and asked to recant his views that Christians are saved by faith alone and Christ alone, his now infamous reply to that charge was this, my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. So help me God. Amen. Conscience has always played a central role in the life of the Christian church. Our modern concept of religious liberty actually flowered out of the Christian understanding of conscience. 
the early church father and apologist Lantentius, writing to defend the church against the state-sponsored persecution of Rome, wrote that laws are able to punish offenses, but there is no law able to punish the conscience. Indeed, it was the Puritans, those giants of the Christian faith, who, as J.I. Packer says of them, quote, nothing in the Puritan estimation was more important for any man than his conscience should be enlightened, instructed, purged, and kept clean. To them, there could be no real spiritual understanding or any genuine godliness at all except as men exposed and enslaved their consciences to the word of God. This is why the Puritans so valued and placed as central the right preaching of the word of God. The preacher's task was to awaken and guide the human conscience, making sure that our consciences are aligned with God's will. What is the conscience? Simply put, it is our consciousness of what is right or wrong. It is an inward capacity to judge between right and wrong, like a a little judge, or as John Bunyan puts it, an inward sheriff living within our souls, ever reminding us of our responsibility towards God and how to live rightly with God. Don't do that. Did you just do that? You, You know the inward voice. Living as we do in a fallen world, though, our consciences don't always get it right. No one's conscience is infallible. Only God and his word is, which is why Christians have always said that we need the word of God to help guide and recalibrate and strengthen our consciences. The Apostle Paul warns us that through unrepentant sin, we can, in fact, sear our consciences, right? like, like a, a hot iron searing a piece of meat. As our hearts become hardened, so our consciences become more and more deformed, no longer able to rightly discern what is good and what is bad. There's, there's no more feeling. A seared conscience feels no guilt over sin. Indeed, a man with a seared conscience may even come to believe that certain sins, things that God says are evil, he comes to believe they're actually quite good. As Isaiah the prophet states in Isaiah chapter 5, Woe unto them that call evil good, and good evil. Yes, our society seems more and more as a whole to have collectively had a seared conscience, but that's not our focus this morning. This morning we want to think about what to do when fellow believers, brothers and sisters within the same church, come to different conclusions about different areas of life. That's what Paul's really concerned about here in 1 Corinthians 8. How do we remain united as a church when so often our individual consciences are misaligned with each other? One man's conscience allows him to go and eat a steak which came from a cow just slaughtered at the local temple. A cow offered to some god, but now that it's been slaughtered and the temple can make a buck selling some of the meat, Pastor Steve, after church, goes on down to the local Greenbelt Farmer's Market and buys that steak because that's what he wants for lunch. And he can do that because he knows there's nothing inherently wrong 
with steak. In fact, he thanks God for that steak because he knows God has created that cow to produce the milk, which will be turned into butter, of which Pastor Steve will place some of that butter upon the very meat that thou's been grilled as a steak. God is glorious in how he fits it all together. If I had a patron say, it'd be, uh, what's his name, Ron Swanson? Uh, That guy is gloriously godly. But within the same church, there's a woman who, before becoming a Christian, served as a temple prostitute for years. And for her, any association with eating meat that's been sacrificed at the temple carries with it the deep, deep baggage of worshiping false gods. And now, as a redeemed child of God and a servant of Christ, her conscience does not allow her to eat that meat sacrificed at the temple because she cannot disassociate the meat from what it means to worship in that temple. Her conscience, when it comes to this thing, is so weak that when she sees Pastor Steve eating his steak, she's tempted to say, oh, well, maybe I should eat the steak too. And in so doing, she's going against her own conscience. And what Paul says here is that if she does that, if she does something which her conscience says, no, don't do that, don't do that, there's all these things wrapped up with that that are wrong, If she does it, she's sinning. And so this whole section, really, the next three chapters, is Paul helping us think through issues of conscience and helping us think through how to be a unified church where different people with different convictions of conscience are all together. How do we do that? There's so many questions and and many we can't can't explore this morning. Lord willing, we'll come back to them in the next following couple of weeks. But, you know, do we teach all the weak people how to not be weak anymore and just learn to be cool with eating food sacrificed to idols? Or do we all allow the weak conscience to control how everyone else lives? Really, we can frame the discussion this way. Within the Corinthian church, there were two parties. Those representing the permissive and progressive people, they were, they were always emphasizing their personal liberty and their rights to do what they, they were free to enjoy as Christians. But then there was also the restrictive party, the, the more conservative types, who were always pursuing personal morality and were generally uncomfortable engaging in certain Corinthian cultural practices. In this case eating meat that was sacrificed to idols. These two parties, when carried out to their extreme ends, lead to licentiousness in one direction or legalism in the other. And so the question is asked, how should they then live? Paul begins in verse 1 saying, let's talk about food offered to idols. And he quotes a slogan that the so-called progressive rights-focused group was emphasizing the slogan that, quote, all of us possess knowledge. Do you see that? Paul's probably quoting there from an earlier letter that the Corinthians wrote to him, and it was probably the progressive liberty strong party who wrote that letter and who saw no problem at all with eating meat sacrificed to idols, and so they had written to Paul with a kind of theological explanation of, of what they were doing an expectation that he would back up their position. You know, Paul's going to be impressed with our gospel knowledge. Look at us, Paul. We all possess 
knowledge. They understood that because there is only one God, there is nothing of substance in or behind an idol. And this knowledge had led them to embrace the common cultural practice of eating meat sacrificed to these idols, these non-existing entities, and even eating meals in the pagan temple on occasion. The conservative party, those whose consciences could not fathom eating this idol meat, were probably expecting Paul to pounce. But to their surprise, he actually affirms the progressive party's desire to somewhat support their rights and privileges as Christians. Look there in verse 8, where he affirms that what someone eats doesn't really make a difference because food will not commend us to God. A person is not worse off if he doesn't eat and no better off if he does. In fact, look at verse 6, where Paul says that because all things are created and given by God, well then, ultimately, no material thing is evil in and of itself. Later in chapter 10, chapter 10, verse 23, Paul puts it this way. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. In other words, Christians who properly understand the gospel and God's ownership of the world, they're not moralistic, they're not rigid. They understand that God gives good gifts to eat and drink and enjoy. No, the gospel has set us free, not to be enslaved by the things of this world, to rightly enjoy them, and all to the glory of God. We'll look at that more in the following weeks. And yet, and yet there are still Christians who cannot in good conscience partake. And for different reasons, different people will come to some practice. Again, in Corinth, it was this this act of eating meat, sacrificed to idols. Today, it might be drinking wine or watching certain movies or listening to a certain type of music. Did you feel uncomfortable when I brought up Ron Swanson? He watches that. And certain folks just won't be able to partake without feeling guilty. More than that, thinking that they're actually sinning. Now, to be sure, I want to make this clear. When someone comes to me from the church, and this, this happens quite regularly, I think. When someone comes to me and confesses to me something that they've done, that they're sure is a sin. But in my mind, I actually don't think it's a sin. Let's say they've confessed to smoking cigarettes, right? It may be gross. It may be really unhealthy. But you know what? So is eating Twinkies and drinking soda. Just because it's gross and unhealthy doesn't actually make it a sin. And so when someone confesses to me that they've been smoking cigarettes and and they feel guilty, I will do two things. I will first try and show them that there's actually no passage in the Bible that says thou shalt not smoke cigarettes. In other words, I don't want you to lose your assurance of faith and feel guilt over something that the Bible never says you should feel guilty over. And I'll ask them if they understand that point. Sometimes their consciences will change and they'll say, oh, thank you. But then I'll always say this. But if your conscience is still unsettled and weak over the act of smoking a cigarette and you think that for you smoking a cigarette is a sin, 
Well then, brother, I want you to know I will do everything I can in my power to try and help you no longer smoke. And in Corinth, there were those folks whose consciences really did convict them over the act of eating temple-sacrificed meat. And so Paul, what Paul does is he addresses that progressive party who says, "Eh, that's not a sin. He talks to them and he tells them that though they had their theology right, you're right, you can eat that meat, you can smoke that cigarette if you want. They were completely missing the point when it came to their practice. They were misapplying their understanding of the gospel and so were living lives that were antithetical to the gospel and devastatingly harmful to their fellow brothers and sisters in the gospel. According to verses 1 and 2, their knowledge which was true in theory, it had just puffed them up. It's great that you know that you're free to eat meat, guys, but don't you know that without love, you're actually devouring your brother? So look, this is how Paul responds. Everybody has knowledge. Big whoop. Christianity 101 teaches us that an idol is nothing. He says that in verse 4. But if your knowledge is not adorned with humility and love, then you're doing it wrong. A mere knowledge. Look what he says in verse 1. A mere knowledge, it's only for yourself, and because of that, it puffs up. But knowledge with love, that's others-focused. It's a knowledge that is outward-looking. And so what does that kind of knowledge with love do? It doesn't puff up, it builds up. Paul's not pitting here love against knowledge. No, we, we, we need knowledge. Our consciences need to be daily informed by the knowledge of God's word. But if we're deficient in love, then we're not able to properly apply that knowledge in building up our fellow brothers and sisters and in building up the church. Look at verse 3. If anyone loves God, he is known by God. What's he saying here? Hey, it's great that you have knowledge, but the essential knowledge is whether or not God knows you. And if he does, then you will be someone who loves. To be known by God, biblically speaking, is to be the recipient of God's electing love and grace. God cognitively knows all things, right? He's omniscient. But when he says he knows a people or he knows a person, he's saying he's set his love on that person. When Paul in Romans talks about God's foreknowledge, it's really God's foreloving. And when that happens, when someone becomes a recipient of God's electing love, God's electing knowledge, That person is transformed and he's enabled now to rightly love God and rightly love his neighbor as his self. And so in essence, I think Paul is saying here to those strong, liberty-minded Corinthians, watch out. If you know all these things, but you're not loving others, are you even sure you're really rightly known by God? Right? Like, could it be that they'd get to heaven and be like, Jesus, look, look at all the theology I learned. Like, look at all the Bible that I memorized. 
all the great arguments I made to defend your word. I was an apologist extraordinaire on Facebook. And Jesus would respond with those terrifying words, depart from me, for I never knew you. So in verses one through three, Paul brings the progressive party down a notch. He reigns in the pride of their liberty-thumping knowers and calls them to humility. But in verses four through six, he actually affirms the truth of what they're saying. It's not as if they're, they're theologically wrong. He says, yeah, we, we know that an idol has no real existence. The progressive knowing party, the strong believers, they're, they're right. Their consciences are in fact grounded in the truth of what God's word reveals. There is only one God and from him alone comes all else that exists. And we're going to come back to this, this teaching, this idea next week. And Lord willing, we'll examine in depth these three verses. What, what does Paul mean when he says that there are many lowercase g gods? What? Are there actually other gods? In a sense, yes, there are. Or, 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 or how do we understand what Paul says is the difference between God the Father and Jesus Christ? Like, how is there one God but multiple persons, Father, Son, and Spirit? These are essential for us to know, and, and Lord willing, we'll come back and look at it. But for now, I want you to see that Paul places here, right in the middle of this entire passage, the beauty of God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three distinct persons who live eternally in giving deference and love and mutual praise to one another. In other words, to be known by this God, the triune God, is to become a person who likewise lives a life in deference to others. We become a people who value loving others more than we do our own rights. That's the heart of this whole passage. I wonder if you know that God. If you're unsure, I would encourage you to pray, God, help me to know you, but pray also, Lord, would you know me? This argument is exactly what Paul does in that glorious passage in Philippians chapter 2. I think you know the passage, quote, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests, the rights, the liberties of others. And you can have this mind among yourselves, says Paul, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing taking the form of a servant. I didn't put this in my manuscript, but just consider that passage, this argument, when it comes to something like wearing a mask. I have no doubt that if we, if we did a hand-raising exercise right now, half of us would say masks are dumb and we ought not to wear them. Half of us would say, well, no, they're probably smart, we should wear them. And then on the edges would be those who say it's, it's wrong for me to wear them and those who would say it's sinful for me to not wear it. Think about what this does in, um, 
Paul's argument here. I just lost my place. It's okay. I think Paul is saying here in 1 Corinthians, hey, hey, do you really know God? And he's saying, well, this is the God I, I know. The triune God in whom there is perfect love. Indeed, a love so intense that the Son, out of love, gave up his right to glory, to the glory of heaven, and gave himself over to death in order to serve and save a people who could now know God. Know him now no longer as a judge, but know him as the Father, because the Son knows the Father, and he wants to redeem us in order to give glory and enjoy that same Father. And so what he does is he gives up his rights to help us enjoy and praise the Father. If we know that God, then we should find ourselves becoming like him insofar as we are selflessly loving others, sacrificially giving up any of our rights in order to serve others, and doing anything we can, even dying to self daily in order to draw others closer to that God. Paul ends this passage by saying, in order to not have my brother stumble, I'll give up meat for the rest of my life. Could you keep wearing a mask for the rest of your life? That's where Paul takes us in the last paragraph. So again, verses 1 through 3, Paul says, knowing who we are in Christ is great. Having a conscience that can enjoy our liberties and rights, that's great. But if we don't have love, then our knowledge is malformed. In verses 4 through 6, he says, look, you're free to eat meat, sacrificed to idols, because really it's just meat. It was sacrificed to nothing because idols are nothing. God is the one who created that meat. But ultimately, I want you to know and be excited about that God and his loving character more than you are about what you can or cannot eat. And so lastly, in verses 7 through 13, he says, look, believers who know and love Christ will live out their love for Christ by loving others and by imitating the sacrificial love of Christ in all that they do. The reason this is so crucial It's because not everyone is able to apply the gospel to how they live in the same way. Look at what Paul says in verse 7. Not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. They're unable to apply the knowledge of the gospel to this area of eating meat. Now think about their situation for a second. They lived in a culture so thoroughly pagan that much of the meat available to buy was meat usually offered in some temple as a sacrifice to their local god. And so for many believers, probably folks who came out of that pagan lifestyle and knew what it meant to worship those false gods, for many of those people, that meat was defiled. Eating it wasn't just eating meat. Eating that meat was, in their mind, worship of the god. You're asking me to do the unconscionable. Think about that for yourselves right now. If you went to lunch this afternoon and found out that the food being served, the food you were already eating, had just been devoted ritualistically to Balaam, 
Or perhaps you're at a Thai restaurant and you find out all your food is first offered up to Buddha. Or perhaps you, you went Indian this afternoon and it turns out all the food you eat is first offered up in a very ritualistic way to Annapurna, the Hindu goddess of food. Would you still eat it? How you answer that question may determine where you fit in within Paul's categories of having a strong or weak conscience. And honestly, where you fit in is not really the issue, is it? Like, do you notice here how Paul does not try and encourage those who are weak to somehow become strong? If you think eating steak, which has just been sacrificed to Vishnu, is a sin... Paul isn't supremely concerned with whether or not you've got it all figured out just yet. He does say in verse 8, look, food won't commend you to God. Whether you eat the meat or don't, that has no bearing at all on your standing before God. In other words, the problem isn't in the meat. But nonetheless, if your conscience isn't ready to eat, well, then that's what's supremely important. That's what Paul wants to protect. And so the point Paul wants to make is this, verses 9 through 11, take care that this right of yours, if you're okay with eating the meat, take care that this liberty you enjoy does not somehow become a stumbling block to those brothers and sisters who are weak in their conscience. Verse 10, if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat the food too? And so by your knowledge, this weak person has destroyed the brother for whom Christ died. Do you see? Friends, eating the food becomes sinful, not because it was sacrificed to an idol, but because of how the food was viewed by a weaker brother. It's sinful for the weak brother to eat because his conscience sees it as a sin. And it can be sinful for a strong brother if his eating of the meat is done in such a way to encourage that weak brother to go against his conscience. This principle is crucial to grasp. Listen, conscience cannot make a wrong thing right, but it can make a right thing wrong. Get that. Conscience cannot make a wrong thing right, but it can make a right thing wrong. If the Bible says something is a sin, I can think it's not a sin all I want. Eh, adultery is cool. It's not a sin. God's okay with it. Doesn't care. Doesn't matter how much I really believe that. That's still a sin. But if there's something that's not really a sin, but I think it's a sin and I do that thing, here's the surprising truth then it really is a sin for me. Really, Steve? Where is that in the Bible? Well, we've just been unpacking it here in 1 Corinthians 8. But listen here to Romans 14. Paul in Romans 14, verses 20 through 23, Paul says, look, all food is clean. You're free to eat whatever you want. But don't you know that it's wrong to make another brother or sister stumble by what you eat? It's not good to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. And then in verse 22, he says, the faith that you have, keep that between yourself and God. You're blessed if you have no reason to pass judgment on yourself for what you approve. If you're okay with drinking wine, go for it. Keep that between you and God. But then verse 23, listen to this. Whoever has doubts in his conscience is condemned if he eats 
because the eating is not from faith, from what my conscience allows. For whatever does not proceed from faith, says Paul, is sin. This underlines, at least in my understanding, why it's so important to have our consciences guided and informed and reformed by Scripture. Ultimately, we want to be okay with and enjoy what God is okay with and what He sees as good. But if your conscience isn't fully formed yet to match exactly with what God says is good and what God says is bad, right? And look, no one, no one this side of heaven has it absolutely right. Like, God has the ultimate view of what's good and bad, right? And our entire lives is trying to match our conscience with God's view of things. Most of the time, you know, I'm here, Dan, you're over here, and you know, uh, my wife, she's up here. And the more we read the Bible together and, and hear the Bible preached, our consciences get more and more aligned and hopefully aligned to God. But it's never perfectly aligned this side of heaven. And hopefully we agree more and more as we come to the scriptures, but, but it's not always like that. So we can only go where our consciences lead and to go against conscience is neither safe nor right. And so what Paul is doing here is saying, look, you're in a church where everyone's consciences are aimed at different angles. You all don't really agree on all the fine details of life. He's sanctifying us and and moving our consciences closer to his will. But yet, until that perfect day comes, how do you stay unified? Paul's answer is to selflessly and lovingly consider your brother as more important than you or your own liberties or your own rights. Why? Look at how Paul argues here. If the weak brother does go against his conscience, then he's sinning. He's doing something worthy of judgment. Look at verses 11 through 13. And by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. Verse 12. Thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it's weak, you sin against Christ. And therefore, food makes your brother stumble. I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. Paul says a weak person is destroyed if they sin against their conscience. Twice in verse 13, he uses the word stumble. That word, stumble, it's often used by Paul in the New Testament writers to actually speak of the final judgment at the end of time. There is, I think, a strong parallel to what Paul is saying here and to what Jesus spoke about in Matthew 18, where Jesus warns against making the little ones, those who are weak, to stumble. Quote, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, the word Jesus actually uses is stumble. It would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. And then he immediately says, if your right hand or foot causes you to stumble, the same word, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands and two feet and go to hell. Paul is applying the exact same teaching here to the Corinthians and to us. It's a matter of life and death, brothers, sisters. To do anything which causes one of our fellow members to stumble and to sin and to go against their conscience. What does Paul say? I not only sin against my brother, but I'm sinning against Christ. Do I really love my freedom and liberty to do what I want more than I love Christ and those brothers for whom Christ has died? 
I wonder how all this sounds to you if you're not a believer. Does it surprise you that you exist to not care only about yourself? For that matter, you weren't created to care even primarily about yourself. Contrary to our current cultural fascination with self-love and self-care, the Bible presents for us a radically different view of things where other people are more important than me. More precisely, knowing and loving Jesus is supremely more important and helping others to know and enjoy him is paramount over my wants, rights, and liberties. Friends, Christians are free in Christ. And yes, we can, we can enjoy all the good things of this world. But we do so only insofar as we understand that Christ himself has sacrificed his own freedom on my behalf. Any rights I have are only a result of Christ laying his claim aside, his, his claim to glory. All my liberties, name them, think through all the good things we get to enjoy. They're ours only because our ultimate strong brother gave up his liberties out of love. He gave up his liberties in order to serve the weak and the frail, each and every one of us. What this does is it enables us to see that any privileges we do have are really just, I think it helps us to see that they're shared privileges. Christ didn't die for solitary individuals. He died for his bride, the church, his collective people. Our rights and our privileges don't exist in isolation because everything we are and everything we do is now only one part of a greater whole, namely the church that Christ has died for. Everything I do has some bearing on those around me. And that's what the cross does for us. Christianity isn't a question about what I can or cannot do. If that's what you think Christianity is, what this religion is, you've not gotten it yet. The cross changes my life and makes everything a question of how do I serve and love others as I serve and love Christ? How can I be used to help others know and savor and delight in Jesus Christ? Do you see? When we recognize the deep implications of what Jesus has done for us, we are enabled to start laying down our lives more readily for others. In the year 1500, in a town called Haltwhistle, the north of England, just below Hadrian's Wall, before you get into Scotland, there is uh, a little town of Unthank, and in that town is a ancient manor called Unthank Manor, or Unthank Hall. You can Google it. In the year 1500, baby was born there, and he was named Nicholas Ridley. Nicholas Ridley grew up and was changed by the preaching of the gospel that was coming out of Germany during the Reformation and said, England needs this. And so he started preaching that same gospel that he heard Luther talk about, that we're saved by faith alone in Christ alone, and there's nothing we can do to secure salvation. The king, King um, uh, Henry VIII, uh, liked what he was doing, and it was, a, it, was a, it was a good thing for his political cause. And he said, hey, Nicholas, I want you to lead uh, my school in Oxford. And he did, and he became friends with another great preacher, Hugh Latimer. 
And these two were, were really firebrands to help England grow in their understanding of the true gospel, bringing them out of the darkness of uh, what was a, a, a medieval Roman Catholic theology. In 1553, after Edward VI died, his Roman Catholic half-sister Mary Tudor became queen. And she disliked and hated all the glorious truths of the Protestant Reformation. She immediately arrested the great preacher Hugh Latimer and put him in the Tower of London. Nicholas Ridley was removed from being a bishop and excommunicated. Eventually, they were both brought to Oxford for trial where they were found guilty of believing in salvation through Christ alone, by faith alone. Because they would not renounce this knowledge, they were sentenced to die. They would become England's first martyrs. Their consciences were bound to Christ. After some weeks of separate imprisonment, the two met on the day that they were to be executed. They were led to a certain place in Oxford where a crowd had gathered. You can still see the spot today where a stone X marks the spot. Nicholas Ridley, the one born in unthanked manner, the younger of the two, distributed some final mementos. Hugh Latimer, 70 years old at that time, was stripped down to his undershroud. Men were seen weeping at the scene. A blacksmith took the two preachers and fastened them to a large stake with the chain, and they piled logs around them. Nicholas Ridley's brother-in-law was allowed to give each one of them a bag of gunpowder with the intention that when the fire hit the gunpowder would explode and kill them more quickly. Someone brought fire and began the flame at Ridley's feet. Hugh Latimer then shouted out his now famous last line, Be of good comfort, Master Ridley. And play the man, we shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. The flames grew quickly. Hugh Latimer prayed to his father in heaven, receive my soul, and he swiftly died, probably from suffocation. Nicholas Ridley, his death took longer. The fire quickly hurt him, but slowly killed him. Such dramatic deaths for the gospel of justification may seem unrelated to the smaller matters of whether I need to wear a mask or not, or give up eating meat sacrificed to idols, or drinking wine around a brother or sister who struggles with alcohol. But I think they're related. The heart that is prepared to value God and value the gospel and to value others ahead of self in the little ways is the heart ready to serve God in those bigger ways. Days that might be in our future. By God's grace, Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley's love for the truth exceeded their love for their own lives. It's been more than 450 years that Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley were burned to death in Oxford for the gospel. I pray we can keep their example today. Perhaps it won't be by dying burned at a stake. But realize that in the small acts of self-giving love and selfless obedience and serving others, that ultimately prepares you for the greater acts of giving and sacrifice. Preferences and even rights and liberties surrendered in love make way for a life surrendered in love. I pray we can all be those people. Let's pray.